Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The sun went down Like a plane was crashing on the ground No survivors, just two broken hearts And a photograph of something that we could have been Okay, so are you still referring to the studio as the the tackle shop? Was it the tackle shop? <laughs> uh, it was it was the tackle box, the tackle box, because it's where you keep your hooks. Carry keep my hooks. Yeah. Is yeah. this so? Is this the tackle box Mark II or? You know, when I got this room, uh, I immediately, as as you can see, there's like no art on the wall. I literally just like set my stuff up and started working. So I haven't even like given it any thought. Like, what is the name of this studio? So it's a work in progress. Still. It's a work in progress. Yeah, it's just my little my little overdub room where I work on commercials and and uh, and you know record vocals and stuff like that. But for the most part, when I record other people's records, where I'm at a bigger studio that actually has a name, <laughs> right, right? And the name is uh, the layer is the one the that layer. I yeah, that's one that I recorded a lot. That's, I like that. Yeah, it's a cool studio. That's where uh, Weezer records there a lot. Wow. And, uh, that reminds me actually i'm trying to get an interview with rivers so uh, i need to chase that up oh okay he's out here right they live out here in yeah California. i think he lives in santa monica i believe yeah. nice that guy so i interviewed him recently for a, like a print feature and he came out and he was like hey man i like your hat and i was like cool <laughs> <laughs> what, what hat were you wearing it was like um you know like those kind of winter fluffy eared 
type oh, yeah, things. Yeah. So it was um, like a sort of woolly hat on top, but then with the fluffy ears on the side, like a droopy dog. Like a Fargo hat. Exactly like yeah. one of those, yeah. And he was like, and he had a little tr- a straw trilby thing on. He was like, I like your hat, man. That's like, awesome. does that make us buds? Are we now pals? <laughs> Rivers. So the first time I met you, Linus, was in this building five years ago now, which is crazy. I was out here to see Jarrett to do a little interview with him. Yeah. Um, and we had one of my favorite nights out I've ever had in LA. We went out to the Mexican restaurant across the street, which hopefully we're going to go and visit after this. We could do that, yeah. Which is one of my favorite restaurants in all the world. Is it maybe the best Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles, would you say? It's up there, right? Uh, I would say it's the coolest, like, vibe-wise. Like, if you want to hang out with a group of friends, it's really dark, and you can get a booth, and, you know, like, that kind of thing. I mean, there's probably some better uh, restaurants food-wise. Right. Um, but, yeah, if if you want to have a great night out, a Hollywood night uh, there's nothing nothing beats El Compadre. El Compadre, baby. Yeah. And then we went down the road to the now defunct and deceased House of Blues, which is obviously gone, Yes, to see Steel Panther. Ah. And it would have been a funny full circle moment because before we were going to chat, I was going to chat to Michael in this very room. That would have been a nice kind of weird yeah. synergy, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then after that, we ended up, I just saw the place and reminded myself of it. I think you were with us. I hope I'm not getting you in trouble by saying it. A little Seventh Veil action. Oh, okay. To end All right. the night. Were you with us? I don't remember. Yeah. I, I actually don't remember any of this night. I remember, I remember seeing you and I remember being in the studio, but... Uh, if it was five years ago, there was a lot of uh, drinking a, and debauchery yeah, 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 going yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. So pretty much every night with me and Jared is, was like that. <laughs> so, That's the holy trinity right there. Yeah, so it's it, funny because Seventh Veil, though, you can't... And it, it was cool for me to be in there because obviously it's the venue that Motley Crue reference in the song of the same name. Obviously, yeah. they've got the sign Girls, Girls, Girls. But Raising what was held weird, at the Seventh Veil. Paris, France. <laughs> but what was weird is that you can't drink in there. Yeah. You can't drink alcohol. And you, but you still have to order two drinks at a time. Yeah. So we go in there and we're all sat there and we've got like two cokes each, and it just it felt a bit sad and a bit tragic. So we got out fairly quickly. Yeah. It's not like jumbos, which is cool and you can drink beer and it's not actually yeah, a strip, bar. strip clubs in LA are very odd because yeah. they do have these weird sort of laws and uh, what is the law if there's nudity, there's no alcohol. That's is that right. what it is? That's right. And now it's funny. Jarrett and I went to Crazy Girls, which is around the corner on the uh-huh. Brea. And we went there, it was like seven o'clock one night and we, we just wanted a drink and it was like walking distance Yeah. and we, and he had just gotten off the plane. So, uh, we needed to catch up and all that. So we're like, let's just go into crazy girls. And we, I remember we walked in and we sat at the bar and I think at that time only one girl was even there. You know, they, they just opened and we, we were gotten to this really in-depth conversation and we weren't even paying attention to the girls and they, they in, were yeah. getting really mad at us. Like girls kept coming over and trying to talk to us. And we're, we're just like having this like super in-depth conversation. Just throwing down. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but when we were paying attention, it, it basically was like a, it's like a bikini bar or something. And then apparently, I guess if you go in a, there's like a back room they keep trying to get you to go into. A VIP lounge. Yeah. But it's yeah. like couple hundred bucks and we I have no idea what goes on back there but it must Everything, be must probably. be great because people seem like they were having they're walking out with a big beaming smile from ear to ear as they yes, come out like, yes all right so you were born am I right in thinking you were born in Nebraska yes and how long were you there until and what was that like as a kid being in a place like that I imagine yeah, well, pretty different my, to my dad was military so we okay. so uh, I don't remember Nebraska at all there just happened to be an air force base there and I was there probably from the ages of zero to one. Oh, okay. So yeah. zero memories. Yeah, yeah, Zero yeah. memories, yeah. And then, uh, I mean, by the time I was in sixth grade, I had already lived in Nebraska, Illinois, Iowa, and Texas. And then I moved to Florida when I was like 11. So basically every four years we were we were moving somewhere else as, as a kid. So 
And are you only living on the military bases? And are you going to school with fellow military kids? Or are um, you actually in the city in... Yeah, well, well, my dad, uh, he taught ROTC at colleges. So, like, when we lived in Iowa, we lived in Ames, where, which is where Iowa State University is. So, so yeah, we didn't really live on the base. We lived near bases. Um, What's ROTC? Sorry, by the way. Um, I don't know what it stands for, but it's, uh, it's <laughs> right. like when I was in high school, um, it was basically if you're too young to join the military, you join ROTC. It's sort of like training for to be in the Air Force the or Cub something. Scouts like that. of America. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And but he taught it at college, so I'm not. I I'm, I'm not quite sure. I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> Love it. And did you have brothers or sisters? Were you an only child? I had two older brothers. Two older brothers. Yeah. So you're the youngest of three. I was the youngest of three. Yeah. And what was your relationship with those guys like growing up? Were you close as a sort of unit? Was there a big age gap between some of you? Um. Yeah. So my two older brothers uh, are like. I think three and four years older than me. So I was definitely the baby. Um, I think, but massive are all your brothers massive. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're all tall. Is it your dad or your mom's side that has the huge genes? My mom is short, but my dad is, is a yeah, giant. Everyone it? in the family is six foot two, six to six foot four. Right. Giant feet. Yeah. Yeah. Size 14, right? <laughs> size 14. Well, they're 15s called? now. They keep are they growing. 15? They're yeah. still growing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my family, uh, we all kind of, do our own thing. Uh, my dad was very like strict mm -hmm. uh, military guy, and I immediately got into music when I was a teenager. And I was like, you know, teasing my hair and wearing eyeliner. I was really into hair metal, and I think they tried to be supportive at first. And then, you know, like after coming to see some shows of their son <laughs> dressed as a woman, basically, I think they were very confused as to what I was doing <laughs> this with my isn't life. A done thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I was in like gifted classes growing up and I skipped a grade when I was a kid. So I think they thought like I was going to be the, the doctor or something. Yeah. yeah. And as soon as I heard like Van Halen 2, I was like, that's what I want to do. That was the one, was it? <laughs> that's the one that lit the fire. Yeah. Well, I, when I was younger, I was really into like the police and Adam and the Ants and all that. I was really obsessed with the police. The British New Wave stuff. Right. Yeah. I loved all that stuff. Um, but I was still really into school. And then when I moved to Florida, I met this kid uh, on the beach and he turned me on to Van Halen and Rush and all the hard rock and metal stuff. And that's when, like, it really clicked. I'm like, I want to do this. <laughs> what age did you start playing an instrument? And what was your first one? Um, I started playing guitar, like, when I was five. Five? I just taught myself, yeah. How do you teach yourself guitar when you're five? I don't remember. <laughs> I really don't remember. I, I have friends that are really great teachers uh, because they remember how they learn. So they can tell other people, like, oh, this is how you do it. I don't remember how I learned. I just took a really super early interest in it and it feels like i've just always known how to to play i don't remember learning that's wild <laughs> yeah. so i guess it must have been destiny i believe in that stuff i believe you know you look at someone like a Jimi hendrix figure or a slash and you can't imagine them not ever having a, a guitar like constantly attached to their body there's something about some people i think they just pick up an instrument and there's a bond there yeah you feel it, like that yeah and it's really weird too because like i um no one in my family is musical at all. And I have pictures of me like when I was two years old with these giant headphones on my head, like <laughs> listening to rock and roll over by kiss or whatever. And I just loved music and, and I didn't get that from anyone in my family. No, no one is musical. I mean, we enjoyed music, but there, I didn't have a musician in my family or anyone telling me like, you should play guitar or anything like that. I mean, I didn't even really get into the Beatles and stuff like that until I was like 19 or 20 because that, that just wasn't stuff that we were hearing around the house. And so. did you pick up any other instruments aside from guitar? Because you play obviously a lot now. Yeah. When, when did you start becoming the, the multi-instrumentalist that you are? When I lived in Iowa, um, I went to this place called 
the media arts workshop and I would go there once a week for an hour and a half and I would take half an hour of drums, half an hour of guitar, and then half an hour of something called synthesizer programming. And it wasn't even That's like so 80s. Yeah, That's it wasn't amazing. even playing. It was just like learning all the like oscillators and all the different knobs on the keyboard and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm glad that my, my parents were supportive of, of that. You know, they, they got me the lessons. They could tell I took an interest in it. So it was cool to figure out all the different instruments. What's your favorite <laughs> to play? Um, I really like playing bass yeah. and as an adult that's something I've like whenever someone hires me to play in their band I'm usually playing bass okay um, and I just love the musicality of it and if a song is really good you can really get away with a lot of movement and melodic playing uh, and yeah so I think that's probably my favorite like if someone wants me to play in their band I'm always like can I play bass <laughs> and who would be your like signature go-to bass inspirations um I would say it's people who are, uh, well, a lot of songwriters. So Paul McCartney is my favorite bass player of all time. I mean, I don't think there's anyone anyone better than him. Um, but I learned how to play bass by playing along with, like, the first four Elvis Costello records. Love it. And the first Joe Jackson album, Look Sharp. Wow, yeah. So, like, I love that That, stuff, that to me is, Stepping like... Stepping out. Yeah. My aim is true. Yeah. I mean, the bass playing on those albums, if, if you're a, a bass player... Or you're learning to play bass, you can literally find pretty much everything you need to know on those first four Elvis Costello records, bass playing wise. Were they both every, like, produced by Nick Lowe? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure. I think they I, were. I they, think they, they were kind of in that. What was the record label? Stiff, wasn't it? Stiff mm -hmm. Records. And they had The Damned put out their first album on there. There was Reckless Eric, Nick Lowe. And then I think Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello sort of produced a lot of other artists around that time as well. Elvis Costello did the first specials album. Oh, yeah. And it was all this kind of, it wasn't quite punk, you know, it didn't have that same aggression and abrasiveness, but it was like, I guess, new wave, you could call yeah. it. Yeah, it did Squeeze too, right? Squeeze, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Some of the bass lines in those songs as well. Oh, yeah. Cool for cats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that stuff's amazing. So what brought you out here, West Coast, the rock and roll dream? Um, well, I mean, growing up in Florida, I started playing in like hair metal bands when I was like 15 and, you know, we, we were like the band, if, 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 uh, Firehouse or Steelheart or one of these like bands were coming through town, we would be the ones that opened up for them. So we were like playing for big audiences and nice, but this was, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties is before the internet and all that kind of stuff. So the good to, days. Yeah. To be, <laughs> but to be a band in a small town in Florida, there was really no way to get noticed. I mean, the idea of like a record label guy coming to your show uh, just seemed like this pipe dream that never could ever happen, you know? Because yeah. um, the industry was based entirely in LA and New York. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And there, you know, there were, there were a couple of bands from Florida who, I mean, Marilyn Manson was from Florida and uh, Saigon Kick and, and uh, there were some bands that were able to sort of get discovered there but for the most part there Manson were... was from florida wasn't yeah it? miami i never knew that yeah obviously biscuit were from down there weren't they and yeah less than jake so there was a few in the 90s i guess gainesville was quite a hot spot wasn't it yeah well by the time and... the 90s happened then everything changed i mean newfound glory i think is from florida yeah. and like yeah so but but this was like before that even before you know it was sort of really hard to to imagine getting discovered and moving on to the, the next level so to speak so so when I was 21, I just said, man, I, I got to go to L.A. I mean, I'd loved, you know, I, I used to have a friend that went to L.A. Uh, went back in the hair metal days and he would come back with like issues of the Rock City News. And I would just like, you know, thumb through the pictures and, you know, this is hair metal. So I'm just like looking at all the bands and going, whoa. And and so I missed that era. By the time I came out, it was 94. 
Um, so and, it was Green Day, it was yeah. Offspring. Was well, that what was happening? Or? Yeah, so like around 92 is when Nirvana came and that's when all the hair metal got wiped out. So I was like kind of lost for a couple of years and, and that's when Pearl Jam, like I really liked Nirvana, but like Pearl Jam came out and I couldn't really get into Pearl Jam because like, you know, they weren't putting on a show. They were just very like, they were sort of like every man the guy singing didn't have like a super high range and, you know, or whatever. And I, I noticed, I remember at, at high school, you know, the jocks started playing guitar and playing Pearl Jam songs and wearing and, check shirts. Yeah, like wearing the, yeah exactly. There, yeah. And so, uh, so now, now that I'm older, I can, I can appreciate that. But at the time it was, it was, um, you know, I, I was like, well, what am I going to do? This is not my scene. This is what's popular now. And this is not what I'm into. And, Did you feel like you'd miss the boat? Yeah, well, I just thought this music that I loved, because I was really into metal stuff, and yeah. so I, I just felt like, oh, well, like, I can't do this anymore. I mean, I had long, long, luxurious hair. and <laughs> I uh, saw a picture that you put on Facebook the other day. That's I was hilarious, like, right? <laughs> like, proper windswept, like, blow-dried look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's... Guyliner and everything going on, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, I, yeah, when I moved out here in 94, that's, uh, I think Dookie had just come out, and, and smashed by offspring right yeah and 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 weezer uh the blue, the album, blue album had not come out yet and Ooh. i actually saw them play at this small club on uh on sunset called club lingerie and it was like the week before their album came out and i remember a friend of mine had like the promo of the album and the college stations had started playing them and that was like a really big one for me because because you know those guys are all former metalheads yeah too yeah you, you know can what I mean? hear it in the guitar oh yeah and so it was, i'm like this is like the power chords and heavy guitar and it's melodic and I can connect with the lyrics. And so pretty much like Weezer and Green Day, I was just like, okay, I can do this. And so I you just found like, yourself again. Yeah. Hopped on that train. And that's where like my, my first band size 14, that's where that came from. I was listening to uh, that stuff and also a lot of even more indie stuff like pavement and archers of loaf and helium and all these like really dissident bands. I, I think I got to a point where I pretended like I, couldn't play guitar for a while you know it was like shameful if you knew how to shred so you would kind of pretend like you were sloppy yeah 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 yeah. and then uh then as size 14 sort of went on for a little bit we we kind of started putting solos in our songs and you know uh playing power chords instead of weird dissident chords and stuff like that and it got a little more felt a little more comfortable to kind of acknowledge showcase a little more musicality as well yeah Totally. I mean, well, tell me about that Weezer gig. What do you remember from that? I was trying to go back to that real quick because they're, oh, yeah. they're one of my all-time favorite bands and seeing them then, I can't imagine how special that must have been. Oh, it was it was crazy. I mean, there was a whole scene going on in, in 94 when I moved out. At, at the Whiskey, there was a club on Monday night called Bianca's Hole and <laughs> you could go and it was free and every band playing, there was a band called Red Five, That Dog, uh, all these sort of bands that were like part of the Weezer scene um, a lot of them ended up getting signed, but none of them really got as big as, as Weezer. Um, it, it was just like a super special time. And there really, f- it felt like there was a scene and it felt like there was a sound, like a LA sound. And um, that was what was really cool about seeing Weezer. They were kind of like the center of that whole thing because it was really great songwriting and really melodic, but it was also really raw and noisy. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty cool. It must have been exciting as well because I guess Seattle dominated so much for a couple of years, didn't it? And as you say, obviously out here, it would have purely and entirely either, I guess, been hardcore punk or hair metal. Right. Yeah, totally. So to have this new thing bubbling away and to be right there and connect to it and be inspired by it. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, th- I think L.A. probably went through the same crisis that I did personally yeah, yeah, for a yeah. couple of years. And I think around the time when Weezer came out is when it kind of found itself again. <laughs> and did you do any cool tours with Size 14? Obviously, the band got signed, didn't they? And there was a certain level of success that that band achieved. Yeah, it was it was kind of a whirlwind. We 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 got really big in L.A. Uh, before we got signed. We were known we, we were kind of. Uh, Steel Panther-esque in that people would come to see our show not necessarily because of the songs but because of our shtick. We were very right, funny. Right, right. Every time we would be telling different jokes and so you sort of had to come and see like you didn't want to miss out on anything, you know? And and we would have these big parties after the show and so it just sort of became like this this fun thing. Um, and then, yeah, when, when labels got involved, of course, that's when everything always, you know, changes and everything gets stressful and there's money and all that kind of stuff or, or no money in our case. Um but yeah, we got signed uh, to a label called uh, Zoo that had uh, Tool and Matthew Sweet and some other bands that we liked. Uh, and they signed us in March, and our album came out in July, and we got dropped in November. Wow. <laughs> so the whole trajectory was very fast. So we really only did about two or three months of national touring, but during that time, we played we played with Real Big Fish a couple times. Nice. Um, they tried to put us on this tour called Scala Palooza. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it was yeah, yeah. Mustard Plug and Mad Caddies and bands like that. And we came out with our brand new road cases and our hair all gelled. I mean, we we, we kind of look like a, a boy band almost. You know what I mean? Even though we were playing this sort of pop punky kind of stuff. And so we only lasted about two dates on that ska, ska tour before people were like trying to beat us up in the parking lot. <laughs> we're like, we got to get what, off. What year are we talking now? This is 97. So that was the year of ska, wasn't it? Like, yeah. That was, that was the third wave ska year after the success of like Sublime and No Doubt and Goldfinger. Then you obviously had Boss Tones, Real Big Fish, all the other bands like Mustard Plug and the lesser known ones in the UK. But yeah. there, there was a massive third wave scar scene in 97 was like peak year wasn't it oh yeah totally. was that all over the radio then at that point in time as well was it sort of a national well there scene? were there were bands that were that were on the radio but but it was i remember when we did that scala palooza tour we had never heard of mustard plug or mad caddies or anything and we were playing these shows and people knew every word and it was like a real big scene but it was a little like real big fish was kind of like nerdy and goofy like we yep. were whereas like we 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 were in like Texas and there was a little bit of like a skinhead like white power thing going on. Not not that those bands promote that, but like no, that, no, that no. was sort of like the fan base, and we were just kind of like, whoa, what is happening? And so we're up there telling like fart jokes and stuff, and they're literally like, you know, yelling at us and giving us the bird and all that. And you know, there, we had a couple of nights where we literally had to like run to our van and like drive <laughs> drive off. Go, 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 yeah, go. so we just told our manager. Plus, we weren't a ska band. It was a really dumb like pairing so we so we we got off of that but for the most part our tour you know it was a lot of like playing for five people and we had a couple nights of glory uh we sold out the metro in chicago because they had been playing our songs on the radio and everybody knew the words to our songs and it was like sold out and like for that night we saw like this could work but the label wasn't like really doing doing the job of getting us on the radio and and we had some uh, terrible moments of, uh, you know, like in Las Vegas, we were getting like three spins a day um, on a major radio station, but the label only put two CDs in the whole like city, like distribution wise. So uh, the radio people would pick up the sales sheet and they'd be like, oh, well, we've been playing this song all, all week and they only sold two CDs, but a thousand people could have gone to the store to buy our CD. They weren't there. You know what I mean? So like that kind of That's stuff. That's going to be frustrating. Yeah. Cause yeah, it was, it was a very helpless feeling. Cause we were just out on the road, like hustling. And, and we saw like in Chicago, 
they were running our song uh, against like Beck and Oasis and all these like big bands, and it was winning. It was like the nightly competition or whatever, and it it won like three three weeks straight. And so we had this one market where like we were gods, but then the next night we drive to Ann Arbor, Michigan, or something, and there's five people again, and we're like, yeah. ah, you know. And so you know, it, we just had that helpless feeling of being on a major label and just not being able to do you know their jobs for them you know it's like you can't sit in the office and make the calls you know it's like you're out on the road trying to just play shows and it's funny does does an experience like that early on in your career leave a mark and put you off wanting to sign with a big label again yeah oh absolutely i mean i think that set the tone for my entire career because uh you know i had to immediately go back come back to la with my tail between my legs uh, I had to get a job. After the six month whirlwind oh, signed yeah. Oh, album yeah. out and drop. Like, me what? and the guitar player Kevin, we we were working at a crappy telemarketing job, and we did the thing where we you signed leave. our deal. We're out. We yeah. we literally did the whole like we're out of here. We got signed. <laughs> Gave everyone the middle finger, and like six months later, we were back at that job with the headsets on in our cubicle, just going like, "What happened?" Because we had literally thought we had made it. Everyone going so. Rockstar, yeah. How you doing? Welcome back. That's right. And you're like, oh god, totally, yeah. And I, I remember there was another label, Universal. They were they were new at the time, and we never heard of them. And they wanted to sign us, and we went to their office, and they gave us a big stack of CDs, and it was like Chumbawamba and Erica Badu and all this stuff. And we're like, well, we're a pop punk band. We don't fit in with any of this stuff, and it didn't make sense. And I, I remember after we got dropped, being at the telemarketing job with my headset on eight in the morning or whatever and i'm flipping through billboard magazine and there's a two-page spread and it says congratulations universal records on your first year and it was all those cds that they had handed us as promos and they were like eight times platinum (laughs) seven times platinum you know like and i was just like ah you know we could have been on that label but you know who knows um you did have a song in dude where's my car though right yeah that was just like a random thing it was so funny because uh you know, when you're on a major label, you don't really know when that stuff is happening. Like okay. someone just sort of tells you like, Hey, your songs in the thing. And we didn't really get any money from it or anything. Oh, so no, I mean, it's like, it goes straight to like I, recouping I, costs. Yeah. There's like, you know, you, you get statements from Sony who now owns the, our, our cat, our record. And it's like negative $750,000 or something, you know? So anyway, you go, you know, you go to the theater and, your songs in the movie so you expect it to be in some cool like dance scene or something and it literally was like this guy going i've got an idea and then it goes and then it clicks to the next scene and that's like, like a scooby yeah, that's, that's about how long your your song is in the movie <laughs> so but yeah it was, it was cool i mean it's cool just to say you know my songs in a, in a movie that people people watch <laughs> and a, a real kind of cult well-loved movie as well yeah and totally. it, it was an interesting time because all those sort of films especially the scar band like you had real big fish beer is in basketball there was a Boss Tones big song in one film, I'm sure. And then there was obviously 10 Things I Hate About You, Save Ferris. Mm-hmm. It seemed like every film you turned on, like teen comedy, there's like a ska band. And a lot of the time actually in the film as right. well, weren't they? Yeah, totally. But yeah. You, you didn't have that moment where no. you're like at the arcade. Like, dude, where's my car? No, never had that moment. I mean, I, I play a Nerve Herder now. I mean, of b- course. Before I was in the band, they were, you know, they did the Buffy theme and they were on, One of my favorite on an episode of Buffy shows of all time. Really? It's, I think it's fantastic. Like, there's an episode, have you seen all of them? 
I have seen none of them. None of them. Yeah. So wow. like, I, I don't, I don't want to ruin my nerve herder credibility, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm probably, I'm probably the least like up on all the sort of pop culture references that, that, uh, you know, the, those guys allude to the Star Trek and the Star Wars and the Buffy stuff. But, um, well, I won't even go down the rabbit yeah. hole with my story then. So do you get a lot of Buffy fans coming to nerve herder shows? Is that like a contingency of that fan base that you still see to this day? Is that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's sort of like I was a Nerf Herder fan before I was in the band and I was definitely coming from the pop punk funny lyrics angle more than the nerd references. Um, but a big part of our current career is playing like Comic-Con and Dragon Con and those kind of like sort of nerd like, you know, cons and stuff. And that's the, sort of the main reason we're there is because we're the band that did the Buffy theme, you know, Um it must have really exposed the band to some new ears. I mean, I heard of the band first through that TV show. Oh, awesome. And you'd see band like, like you'd see their logos on t-shirts at gigs. Yeah. Cuz the UK obviously there's certain bands that cross over, like say a bowling for suit, mm-hmm. huge. But then there's other like size 14 I didn't know till I knew you and was reading up about oh, you. Oh yeah. Well, we and- weren't we we I mean, we probably sold a few thousand records. It's it's funny when I meet people now that know of our band and and i guess in their minds they think that we were like some huge band but we weren't (laughs) you know we were just sort of an obscure you know my my cd shelf is filled with cds of bands that i love that no one's ever heard of you know and so we were kind of like that kind of band (laughs) the connoisseur's choice yeah yeah so when did you did you go solo straight away after the band broke up did you try and find another band or did you just go i'm just gonna do it on my own well even when I was in size 14, I, I became really obsessed with a lot of like sixties music, like the, the beach boys and the zombies. And I, I went through this like total Again, phase you're talking my language. Yeah. And, and I, I was a late bloomer on, on that regard. Uh, there was, there was a band called jellyfish. That was like sort of a big cathartic band for me because that's what they were sort of the band that turned me on to all this stuff as a songwriter that I had sort of missed out on growing up in the metal world. Yeah. Um, so well, were they of that era or were they a more contemporary band that referenced they were a band that came out in in the uh, the nineties, early nineties, and so uh, you know that was a band that I latched onto coming out of the the hair metal years. They actually, I remember seeing their video on Headbangers Ball, which I think they just played because they all had long hair and they kind of looked like Enough's Enough or something. But their music is like you know Super Tramp, Foreigner, and also a lot of like sixties references. And and it, when I heard them, it just blew my mind. The songwriting, the harmonies the arrangement all this stuff flying out of the speakers and uh i was just i became obsessed and i remember joining their fan club i must have been like late teens at this time and they had a list of everyone in the band's favorite albums right and the singer's favorite albums were uh rubber soul uh pet sounds sail away by randy newman odyssey and oracle by the zombies you know and I can't remember what that one was, but I immediately went to the record store and bought all those records. And I had never, I mean, I knew Beach Boys from the sun, the sun-kissed commercial, Good Vibrations, where they're selling like orange soda, <laughs> you know, this stuff that I had heard growing up, but I never really delved into it from like a songwriting production standpoint. And an album point of view, because like those oh, yeah. records you mentioned there, real albums and journeys, aren't they? Yes. Not just in sound, but in theme. and Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I remember putting on Pet Sounds and just going like, oh, like it was almost like that's where they got all this stuff from. But, you know, they 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 were brilliant and had their own like, you know, take on everything. But 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 going back and really listening to like where they got all this melodic harmonic information from uh, the, you know, the original versions of of, of that 
was just super inspiring. So back to your question, when I was in size 14, I'm playing pop punk every night, but in, in, in the, on the tour bus, I'm, I got my headphones on and I'm listening to the zombies and all this obscure stuff from the sixties. And so I sort of made up my mind that I wanted to make a record that sounded like that. So I had an eight track, uh, recorder a digital eight track in my bedroom and i had one microphone i don't even think i had a compressor or anything and i made what turned out to be my first album uh called your favorite record and it was just really my attempt at being like trying to make another record that sounded like all these records that i love and i really didn't think anyone would like it or care and uh, a label in japan ended up licensing my record and it went on to sell but ton of records there and so my first gig in japan was playing in front of three thousand people at this giant theater you know playing with apples and stereo and these big bands and i'm just playing acoustic by myself and uh, i was like wow this is pretty cool <laughs> so that's a relationship that continues to this day right yeah i mean definitely for at least about 10 to 15 years after the after i first went over i mean they pretty much licensed every record i put out on my label uh and I got a lot of production work producing other artists. I had a couple of hits over there, like writing songs for their like pop artists and stuff like that. So uh, big in Japan, big in Japan. It's, <laughs> it is a thing. <laughs> and when do you start producing other people? When does that happen? That happened around the same time, actually, because I, when I made my own record, I was like, oh, this is pretty fun and cool. And uh, there was a, a girl uh, around town named Kim Fox who had just got dropped from Dream- DreamWorks. And I loved her stuff. And so I was like, hey, I'm starting this label. Let me, you know, produce your record for free and I'll put it out on my label and da da da. da. And so I did that. And uh, the record itself, I don't think, did, did well, but it landed on a bunch of AR people's desks around town. So I started getting, everyone was kind of like, who's this guy making these records with horns and strings and stuff in his bedroom? Um, so I started getting a lot of uh, production work, like developing bands, like Glenn Ballard's label hired me to do a bunch of stuff. And it's like a lot of new bands that were in development. And I would just like record them in my bedroom and <laughs> they would pay me. And <laughs> Literally your bedroom. Literally well. my bedroom. It was, you know, the bedroom was about the size of this room that we're in here. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was a huge bed in the middle of it. So, uh, I mean, I produced uh, the singer from the Charlatans, Tim Burgess. I know Tim, yeah. yeah and we did that whole record in my bedroom he's literally like laying on my bed and recording into my crappy little microphone and you know that's that's how we did it back then not not by choice but that's just that's that's where i was doing (laughs) that's amazing i mean i was reading through your wikipedia page earlier and i mean i want to ask you about some of these people because the the list of artists that wikipedia claims you've worked with anyway (laughs) and i hope they're all right cheap trick yep tell me about that i had rick on this show he is one of my he's like a cantankerous old punk rocker in me <laughs> yeah like he's just he didn't give a shit yeah and he's so funny i actually played guitar on an album called the latest right um and it was uh produced by this guy named julian julian raymond and i was literally sitting on my couch uh in my boxer shorts watching television in the afternoon and i got a call from my friend roger manning who plays in that band who used to play in that band jellyfish that i was just talking about and now he plays with beck and he said hey what are you doing right now and i'm like i'm watching tv He's like, why don't you come down to AM Studios and play guitar on the new Cheap Trick album? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that'd be great. So uh, I went down there and basically I played some just some support rhythm tracks on the record. Uh, and it was so I was basically just hired as a session musician, but uh, but it was a pretty cool experience. I'm playing his actual guitars through his amps. And <laughs> what which one did you play? 
Uh, it was just a normal. Like, it, it wasn't. Yeah, one it, it wasn't one of the, uh, the five necks, five like. necks or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it, it was a cool, a cool experience. Yeah, what a great thing to have on the old CV. Yeah. Cheap trick, baby. I mean, there when you talk about power pop, I mean, they were without them, there'd be no Weezer, would they? Oh, of course. Yeah, they're they're one of the they're one of the greatest for the sure. Originals. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, you mentioned him earlier. I can't remember whether the mic was on or not. I think it was just before. Puff Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, that was a wow. very random what thing. Was he P. Diddy, Puffy? He was, was yeah, he? he was P. Diddy back P. Diddy then. Our Puff Daddy, then. yeah. No, I think it was before Diddy, yeah. So he's Puff Daddy. Uh, yeah, this was like 1999 ish right um, after the band right after size 14 the manager from size 14 managed another band called fuzz bubble and that was this rock band that actually sounded like cheap trick they're amazing power pop band still friends with uh the, the main writer in that band to this day and uh the the manager guy said hey uh puffy's doing this uh rock remix for this song called it's all about the benjamins and he's just getting riffs from everybody and he'll pick the best ones and da 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 da, da. And who else was he? I mean, Dave, Dave Grohl, okay. Rob Zombie. I mean, literally, uh, Puff Daddy was handed a CD with no names on it uh-huh. and said, here are 15 riffs that people did as rock riffs, and he picked mine. Above Dave Grohl, Rob Zombie. Well, I don't know so if it killer. was above. It was. Uh, you the, can the, say it was above. Well, the, the, <laughs> well, the first rock remix I was on, it, it it was credited to Size 14 because we were still together at the time, and it said, I think it said all of those people. It said Rob Zombie, Fuzz Bubble, Size 14, or, or or whatever. But then he kept hiring me. I think I was the only like non super famous person <laughs> on that CD at that time. So I became his rock remix guy. So for the next two years. Every time he wanted to do a rock remix, which he did a lot of uh, at that time, he would fly me out to New York. Uh, he would send a limo to my crappy one-bedroom apartment over on Franklin Avenue, and my neighbors would be going, "What's going on here?" <laughs> and put me up in a really nice hotel off of Fifth Avenue, and definitely treated me great, paid me really good. And at that time, it was like to be around 
I mean, that guy was like the biggest thing going at that time. So just to be around that energy was really inspiring and cool and, uh, met a lot of cool people. And, um, but yeah, that was, that was my job. He called me guitar man for two years. I don't even think he ever called me by my name. He'd just be like guitar man. <laughs> Is he a cool guy? He seems like he's very self-aware, great sense of humor. He's obviously appeared in a couple of films over the years where he's kind of sending himself up and yeah he, just, he, is, he seems like a cool dude he's super funny and he I, I don't think i've ever been around anyone where uh he sort of just has whatever the x factor is like when he's around it's almost like uh you want to do a good job for him you know what i mean and he's just a really good leader uh, he surrounds himself with a really a lot of really awesome people he's super funny he never gets credit for being as funny as he is he's like so freaking funny and he just works. He sleeps like four hours a night. He's just a total multitasker, total worker. Um, I don't have anything bad to say about him. He's he's amazing. <laughs> Did you get to go to any cool hip hop parties with him? Hang out with the likes of Snoop Dogg? And well, what was really funny is uh, about a year or two after you know things died down and I wasn't working too much with him anymore, I ran into him. I was doing a different session at the record plant, and he pulled up and he's like, "Oh, you guitar man, what's up?" And so I said hi to him, and then like a couple days later, his uh, one of his people called and invited me to this white party where everyone, you know, dresses in white. And I think, oh, not that all white. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, so it was in the Hamptons or something. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I looked at my my uh, wife at the time and I said, like, should we go to this thing? And we really had a conversation about it. We're just like, I think we'd feel really out of place. We were just imagining it'd be like, you know, all these all like the beautiful people. Well, no, we actually thought it was going to be like these hardcore, like, you know, like this was back when the, the East West coast beef was still going on. Like if, oh, if so he if definitely I, wasn't hanging out with Snoop Dogg then. Yeah. If I, if I went to the studio and Puffy was there, I would get frisked on the way in. I mean, there, there was still this feeling of like, you know, yeah. any moment now something crazy could happen, you know, it was serious, wasn't it? That yeah, time? it was, it was pretty freaky. Yeah. And so, uh, especially as like a nerdy white dude <laughs> yeah. from, you know, yeah. I, mean, I also had to put it in context because like yeah, yeah, I was yeah. still Absolutely. like just a kid, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we got invited to this, this white party and we had the discussion like, well, what are we going to do? It's like, we're just going to walk in and be like, okay, we're here. And like, not know anybody. We just pictured all these like rap, you know, people smoking blunts and, and all this kind of stuff. So we, we ended up not going. And then literally like the next week we picked up a copy of us magazine and it's like Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt and all these people are there. We're just like, we should have gone. Blew it. Blew it. <laughs> Always totally take the it. invite, right? Yeah. Always take the yeah. invite. So yeah. all these other people in that world, do you meet a lot of them through Puffy? I noticed there's little Kim. Yeah. All that R and B stuff. I, I, I started working with a lot of, um, uh, Puffy's, uh, producers, and so they would just call me whenever they needed a guitar on a track. So like, for instance, that little Kim, little Kim track, I had done that track for this guy, Mario Winans, uh, who was one of his main guys. Uh, and it sort of sat around for a year or two and then it ended up on the little Kim record. So, so I get the credit for playing guitar on the little Kim record, but I wasn't like, you know, in the studio with her, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So a lot of those R and B credits, like, uh, like old dirty bastard. I mean, I, I record, I recorded, uh, I played on, uh, there was an album that came out after he died and it was like a remixes of all of his songs. And so, uh, there was a producer named one eye, uh, who hired me to, to just shred, you know, a, like a Eddie Van Halen guitar solo on, on a remix, uh, on one of his songs. So dude, who knew I, you were so gangster, <laughs> so gangster, certainly not, <laughs> certainly not. So. Um, Jennifer Lopez. 
Same same thing. Same deal. Same deal. Yeah, that was a, a, re- a remix. I was doing remixes uh, for a while, and so I ended up doing a remix of one of her songs. I think on Wikipedia they just like clump everything together. So yeah, they did. So some of the stuff is like stuff I've played on. Some of it is remixes. Some of it is I wrote a song and it wound up on their album. And uh, you know, well, what about Pumpkins? That's the last one I want to ask. That you was about. also a, a Puff Daddy thing. We oh, was it? The Smashing Pumpkins sent. Uh, uh, the song Perfect. This is when Ava Adore, Adore, I can't remember the name of the record, uh, came out, but they sent like two or three songs to remix. And I did those with this guy named Michael Patterson. Uh, and it was fun. We, we basically, uh, they would send us the the masters and we got to deconstruct the song. And I would end up like changing all the chords and taking like, so Billy Corgan's melody would stay the same, but I would change all the chords behind it. That must be one of the best bands to get to do that with. Yeah, it was super he's fun. Such a fantastic songwriter and especially around that time, the songs were so multi-layered and three-dimensional and magical. and Totally. To isolate, even just isolating those vocals, yep. and playing with what was underneath it. I mean, that's how big Puffy was at that time. I mean, I, I, remember, uh, I remember being in his office and sitting next to the two-inch reel of Roxanne by the police because they had just sent him that song to mess around with. And I'm just like looking at this like master tape. I'm like, oh my God, that's it. But you know, everyone was sending him their stuff at that time to remix and you were right there yeah it was super right cool there. yeah his right hand guy guitar man yeah when did you first meet Jarrett? how did that friendship start he actually uh sent me a message on myspace you remember myspace uh, i never had it but i remember it yeah <laughs> and it was a really funny uh message uh, he was a, a fan of size 14 and uh he sent me a message and it was very humble it was like uh Hey man, I don't know if you know me, but uh, my name's Jared, and I sing in a band called Bowling for Soup, and I'm a really big fan of Size 14. And I guess he was in China at the time. He tells a story where he's in China and he couldn't find any porn because they had like shut it all down, on, you know, on the internet there. And so he was like, "I'll send Linus a message on MySpace." <laughs> and uh, he was basically coming to LA to do uh, a writing trip. And was just, you know, trying to hook up with a bunch of people he wanted to write with. And I was on the list. And so he... What year was this? This was probably 2008, I want to say. Oh, okay. So well after all the huge success of that band. and so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was like right before... The first album I produced of theirs was called Sorry for Partying. And that was, I think, 2009, yeah. 2008 or 2009, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, he came out and he had a bunch of sessions booked. And, uh, you know... It's funny, I didn't really know too much about Bowling for Zoop. I knew the huge hit, but they're, I don't think they were really huge in California. They were one of those bands that was like really huge in the Midwest. Um, and and uh, so even though pop punk was like my thing and I, and I loved Nerf Herder and Green Day and Mr. T Experience and all these kind of bands. I, I love that band, Mr. T Experience. That's Nerf Herder is about to play with them. Are you really? We're, yeah, we're doing two shows with them uh, wow. at the end of July. So, so good. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but yeah, I didn't really know too much about Bowling for Soup. I just knew like one or one or two songs, really. Uh, but of course, I knew that they were really successful. So I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, we'll write together. And uh, at that time, I was tired of writing in the studio, so I was like, I always wanted to write like at the beach. So <laughs> I'm like, let's not go to the studio. I'm going to take my crappy acoustic guitar and we'll just go to the beach and write a song. And so we went and wrote. Uh, I think one of the first songs we wrote was "Hooray for Beer." Mm-hmm. you know uh and we just we just hit it off instantly and i remember we got lost uh this is before Waze or any gps uh you know on your phone and we were coming back from the beach and we got stuck in traffic and it took us like three hours to get back but we just had like this amazing talk and we bonded and we we 
ended up deciding to start our record label, Crappy Records, and he ended up like canceling all of his sessions. And we just wrote, wrote and wrote and just, you know, he's one of those people like uh, you meet them. Uh, well, he's a very open person. So I think a lot of people feel connected to him when they meet him. But I had, I had the feeling of like, I feel like I've known this guy all my life. You know, we both had very similar upbringings. He had military parents. He had, you know, he was in the marching band. He grew up on metal and then got into pop punk. So like, we had a very similar trajectory. And so we just like totally bonded and, and uh, we're still BFFs to this day. <laughs> I love it. I mean, when I first met you and you were just making or had just finished recording the Jurinus album. Yes. And that's why he was out here. And when I heard that, I was just like, you guys are just two peas of the exact same pod. <laughs> and it's the most perfect unison of sound and sense of humor and, I adore that album and I used to love playing the Morrissey song on Kerrang <laughs> and people used to love hearing it and just so much fun and so like his voice is so fucking good isn't it when he yeah. does those 80s wailing metal moments oh, you're yeah. like whoa yeah and he's one of those guys that like you know I don't even think I can start singing until about 4 p.m. but he's one of those guys that could be like hung over you get him up at like six in the morning and put him on a mic and he can just sing that stuff like immediately his range and everything is just he's he's the real deal he's the dude. <laughs> and my question to you is this linus are you going to do another jurinus album well i don't want to jump the gun on any okay. big announcements or anything but Ooh. we we actually last year uh last summer we he came out here and we did four new jurinus songs with the idea of you know, getting it going again. Uh -huh. But we both had just got so incredibly busy, me with production stuff and him with Bowling for Soup and just life stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, we haven't made any progress on it, but we keep talking about it. Uh, but I'm actually going to go to Texas in a couple weeks and we're going to, we're going to try and work on some stuff. But, but one of the things that we really want to do before we start putting out new music is to, uh, we put out that whole album and there are some songs on there that, are pretty epic, like DVB and so good, farting dude. at Staples. And I love. <laughs> you got to clear your Google history. Yeah, clear your browser history. So, so that song we did. Uh, Lyric. We did genius. a we did a video for that. So that was a song that was like properly sort of promoted, and it, it's still on Funny or Die, which is like a comedy website. Yeah, yeah. But there's some other songs on that album that we didn't do videos for, and so I told Jared, I'm like, before we put out any new stuff, I just want to like put out a couple of those songs before we move on as videos. Yeah. As videos. Yeah. So we actually have a video done for farting at Staples. That's hilarious. And we want to just do some more stuff because the new songs we have are really hilarious and really funny. But we, but like it's, this is sort of my fault. Cause I'm just like, dude, before we put out the new stuff, we just have to like, make sure we give the old stuff like the credit a little bit deserves. more of a chance yeah. before we move on. Cause, cause DVB, I mean, that needs to be a video so, so and good. like a single and like people should, you know, share it and, and that's what's great about doing the comedy stuff is people really do share that stuff and it becomes a little, you have more of a chance of it coming like a viral. Well, yeah, thing. because of the internet. I mean, you're going to get more coverage of a funny video than you are a funny song on the radio, aren't you? Like, yeah, way oh, absolutely. more. Yeah, and if, if you're in a serious band, it's really hard to get people to pay attention or to even, you know, but if you're singing about, you know, going to an office supply store and farting, people are like, what is this I'm watching? And next thing you know, they're <laughs> singing along and <laughs> spreading the joy. I think in this world we're living in at the moment we need joy in in art more than ever don't we we need oh, yeah. entertainment we need laughter we need laughter we need hope. Yeah. absolutely absolutely how do you feel about being an american at the moment i was chatting to my friend not to go too political but oh, I, I don't I was, mind <laughs> i was chatting to my friend last night about it and he was like dude i feel so fucking ashamed and guilty mm -hmm. and i'm like well you can't feel guilty because it's not your fault that this guy is in power but right. 
it must be a difficult time. I mean, it's not exactly all roses in England with Brexit and everything like that happening over there as well. It seems like there's a lot of division in both our countries yeah. at the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it's weird being in a position where if you say things like, I think everyone should have equal rights or I think I don't, I don't think it's a good idea when children are getting shot at school or, you know, these things that just seem like any reasonable person would say, would agree with this. And all of a sudden that, that makes you a radical left wing liberal, you know, these are all like, to me, I just don't understand what the other side of these arguments are. Uh, I'm a big supporter of free speech. Uh, I mean, I, if you want to be a racist or you decide you don't like gay people or whatever your deal is, you actually have the right to feel that way. But when you start legislating against people's rights, that's where I draw the line. You know what I mean? We, we Everyone is supposed to be equal in this country. That's what the, the country was founded on, your country as well. That's a, that's a right that people hold dearly. Um, and yeah, it's just a very odd time. I think a lot of people in middle America are busy working their jobs and trying to keep food on their table and and support their family. So they don't have a ton of time to absorb every nook and cranny of politics. And, you know, the general culture of those areas is pro gun, pro Bible, uh, a little anti gay, you know, that's just what they're, which, you know, it's what they're brought up. That's what they're brought up. Yes. So, so if you have two choices of what channel you're going to watch, you're going to watch Fox news because that's where your general way of thinking is. But unfortunately there's so much sort of propaganda now being fed through that channel. And that's how most people in middle America are getting their news. I just, and accepting it as fact. Yeah. I mean, he has, he has a 40% approval rating right now. And that's the part that's hard for me to reconcile because it's one thing if this guy just kind of duped a bunch of people and wound up in office yeah. and whatever, however deep you want to go into how he got into office. Um, but it's another thing to look at that approval rating and go almost half of the country. He has literally divided the country. He lies every single day and, and you can find evidence of this by Oh, he said that yesterday, and now he's saying this. Constant lying, uh, and people still support it. And so that's the hard part for me to sort of deal with. That's the part that breaks my heart the most, is that there are that many people in this country that, at the very least, are terrible judges of character. But at but more than that, could just be like, oh, well, so it, it's... disenfranchised. Well, so. or just ex- maybe that's where we're at now. Maybe it's okay. I mean, we, we this sort of capitalist culture of do anything to get to the top and everything's about being wealthy and successful and power and all this kind of stuff. I think there are people that think like, well, every president lies or every corporate guy steps on people to get to the top or and, and that's just become like this acceptable thing with some people that that's okay or that's part of being a man or... Or whatever, and uh, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's 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 especially weird living in Los Angeles. I mean, if you ever look at a map of people that vote blue or Democratic, it's people that live in cities. It's people that live with diversity every day. They they live with gay people. They live with Muslims. They live with different you know people of color, and we like it. We like living in a city that's multicultural. 
it's these people that live in these small towns. Like I grew up in a small town that's 80% white. And that's one of the towns that Trump went to on his tour, you know, his little rally tour. Um, and th those are good people that I grew up with, but they just don't have a lot of experience. I didn't have experience. I mean, I didn't know, I, I didn't know a gay person until I moved to LA. I didn't know, you know what I mean? I, there was maybe like one Jewish kid in the school. There was like two black kids in the school. You know, that's what a lot of these people are living with. Um, but those people that don't have a lot of, ex of experience with other people are taught to fear or to blame these people. But when you live in a city, you look around and you say, oh, we're all just people. And I don't know. It's just an interesting, I'm sort of rambling now, but it, no, you're not it's, it's, it's an interesting point that people who live in cities are the ones that generally vote for diversity and equal rights. Because they see the benefits of it. That's right. Culturally even on a cuisine level, if you want to just be selfish yeah. and say, I like eating different types oh, of food. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I walk to the studio <laughs> from my house and I literally, you know, I hear people uh, well, you've got speaking Thai, Russian Mexican and speaking right there, Chinese and speaking door. all these yeah. different languages. And I just, I love that. I think that's so cool. But I imagine, you know, some dude, you know, some Trump supporter walking down the street, he'd probably be very upset, you know, like all these people not speaking English and da 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 da. And it's like, I just don't, I just don't get that. I, I think of, you know, we're living in the world, you know, and some of these people haven't even left their hometown. No. Um, well, what's, well, I think what's interesting is you see, because the homeless problem is so extreme in LA, you see that it's more complex than just that Mexican stole your job. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's real economic inequality is rife. Yeah. And it's more complex than just, you know, we need to protect our own. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and and it's, I mean, because there's enough white people out there homeless as well. Like that's so true. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my wife and I drove back, uh, from, we went up North this weekend and we were coming back and we were going by these, uh, agricultural fields and there was a bunch of immigrants working in the fields. And I made a joke. I'm like, Oh, I don't see any white Trump supporters out there doing that job that supposedly they stole, you know what I mean? They wouldn't want to do that job. You know what I mean? It's like everyone, everyone, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's crazy. If you've ever been to a Walmart in the Midwest or something and you look around, you don't, and you know, it's, you don't go like, oh, these people are really trying to find work and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't get too stereotypical. I'm just saying like every race has their lazy. Yeah, well, they, every race has their lazy people and every race has their hustlers and their smart people. And it's just like, I mean, it's, it's a, people, it's a human they? problem. So to point your finger at, at immigrants or anybody and say they're the reason for my problem is. Uh, well, and the greatest, the greatest irony for me is that everyone who lives in America, regardless of the color of their skin or what religion they subscribe to, is an immigrant. Absolutely. Unless you're a native American Absolutely. Indian, you were not born on this land. You came here from another. That is correct. And that's the most tragic irony to me, is yeah. that people can't see that. Or it's crazy when people are uh, saying how American they are and they're going to white supremacy Nazi marches. I mean, we defeated yeah. the Nazis in World War II. Yeah. And, you know, and now all of a sudden this is like an American thing to do is yeah. walk around with like swastikas. It's insanity. I've got a friend, Itch. He's got a great line in one of his songs, which is my granddad didn't vote for fascists. He shot them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, isn't it? It's like, why do we fight those wars to beat? 
national socialism right. beat back Hitler. And I think ideas. another problem with this country is we're we're a wealthy country, and I think people have too much free time. There's just like <laughs> like reading about like the incels, you know, about this whole thing. No. It's like these men who incel is a, a abbreviation for involuntarily celibate. So right. it's these men who can't get laid, but they're furious at women because they can't, they can't get laid. And so there, I don't know if you remember in Toronto, there was a guy who drove a van into a crowd of people. Yeah. That's why he did it. That was his whole like thing that he had in his head. He was going to go run over a bunch of straight people to punish them for being like having sex or something like that. Just insanity. And there was a, there was a kid in uh, Santa Barbara who went on a shooting spree and filmed this video right before he did it about how he's upset at women because he's, because none of them will sleep with him because yeah. he's probably a jerk. Yeah, it's called Welcome to Life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just insanity. But just... But, like, but, it's but then, right. But then you start getting into this community, and it's a community. There's this Reddit forums of these people who have this, like, weird ideology about how women are evil because they won't sleep with... And you're just like, who has time to even, like develop this philosophy and be spending time like cultivating into this thing that gets you so worked up that you're running over people on you know what i mean like yeah that's crazy to me too like who has the time <laughs> to be thinking about all this stuff just get your ass to work yeah or, or just or wake up with a purpose every day and and do you know do something that's fulfilling to you uh scary times um, talking about waking up with a purpose, though, what have you got coming up? You got anything exciting? Uh, I don't have on? anything. I'm just trying to get laid. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying, but I can't. No one will fuck me. You recently uh, got married, right? Yeah, got yeah. married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. And how's that going? It's you got amazing. Two dogs? Is it two little dogs as yeah, well? I have two long-haired chihuahuas. Mickey Rock style, you see? Does he? he have... He's a big fan of the chihuahua. Yeah, they that's... are a great dog. Yeah. That if you apparently the two uh, most common dogs that people uh, find at the shelter are. Pit bulls and chihuahuas. So there's a million of them. Tough guys are buying pit bulls and women are buying chihuahuas as fashion accessories and both are just getting tossed away. Yep. That's so sad. Yeah, they're both bought as like props almost. Um, And chihuahuas are. And both seem to have the loveliest nature, the ones I've always encountered and come across. Absolutely. In England, it's, yeah, Staffordshire Bull Terriers would be the the equivalent. Like that's like the UK pit bull, I guess. Mm. And they're always the loveliest dogs, but they have this horrible reputation because people obviously taunt them and treat them like shit and make them angry and right. deranged. Yeah, Chihuahuas always get a rap for being like really like Yappy. bark a lot and and but oh man, our dogs are so they're just so loyal. Um, the male dog is super protective of my wife, but like in a Aww. really good way. Like I actually think if someone like tried to mess with her he would like really attack them <laughs> which is hilarious <laughs> to me he's like a tough little dude um, but they're just so sweet and loyal and they're great dogs they get a bad rap but are you thinking about having kids is that something you'd like to do at any point i think it's on the table i'm i'm fortunate because she's she's uh, a little bit younger than i am um so there's a little bit of a t- time to think yeah. about it i don't want to be like the uh the granddad dad yeah like why is your grandpa picking you up from school or whatever you know um but i don't think i ever really wanted to have kids until i turned around 40 and that's when i'm like oh maybe i could see having kids so i think we may at some point but um we're having a lot of fun right now like we don't really feel 
very adult at the moment. We're yeah, yeah. We're traveling well, a lot. The kind of honeymoon period of your marriage, I imagine, right? It's only yeah. Been, what has it been a year, two years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, and traveling is the key as well, isn't it? Yeah, we're just we travel and we started a band together called Hotel Sex, and it's kind of like I a, need, I, you need to send me some of that stuff. Yeah, I'll send yeah. it to you. It's pretty. It really it's pretty cool. over the top. It's yeah, like yeah. Uh, visually, it's very like not safe for work. We keep getting. Yeah keep getting tagged 18 and up on youtube when we put out a video and uh the music is is pretty much straight ahead like electronic pop yeah um, very influenced by a lot of the that kind of stuff that i like like robin and you know mm-hmm. the swedish like dance pop kind of stuff um LaRue, it, stuff like that but it has a little bit of like metal there's a little you know a little darkness to it and uh in visually it's just super fun to to do I'll have to show you some of that stuff. Please do. Yeah. And my final question to you, you just segued in perfectly there with the reference to Sweden. ABBA are back. Yes. What's your thoughts on this? Now, you're a huge ABBA fan, it's safe to say. I have an ABBA tattoo He's one on of the biggest. Wrist. And I was, I'm not that familiar with anything other than the huge singles. Are they a band that are definitely worth exploring album tracks and back catalogs of? Like, is it kind of all pretty gold? Or were well, they more of a singles? I definitely think... For a casual listener, the singles will be probably the. There's a reason why they're singles. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But um, I just think, I mean, if you are a songwriter or a musician or a producer, like there's just so much magic uh, in their their music, just production wise, arrangement wise, um, and just I don't know. I think it's pretty universally agreed upon by musicians that they were genius. They get a, they they get a lot of uh, bad flack for i guess their outfits or whatever and even i guess lyrically sometimes you know like i'll be listening to abba and then someone else like comes in the room and then all of a sudden i become acutely aware of like what i'm listening to yeah yeah, yeah 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 so <laughs> the yes. shame sets in yeah or, or there, there's just like a you know it's it is very kind of 70s and it's a little girly and 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 whatever but it's kind of cheesy there's a little bit of a cheese factor but i've always liked super pop like i love rick springfield I lo- there's the a best. lot of music that i love See, i love rick springfield yeah and I'm, I'm a real big pop guy old pop classic pop yeah I, I i love pop music and i love song craft and song structure and i love a lot of stuff that has edge like i grew up on metal but i also like stuff when it's tight and clean and you know just really well crafted and structured and abba just sort of tickles that that spot for me and you know the bgs and elo and all those kind See, of like i love all those bands so i think yeah. i need to give abba more of a chance yeah you should check them out i mean is the new song around yet or has it just been teased at this point do you know the the exact news well i think the exact news how is how do you they, feel about new material from abba i i welcome it because yeah. uh, the uh, agneta the the blonde uh, lady that sings in abba she put it she's been putting out solo albums that are really great uh and of course benny and bjorn have still been making music and working on musicals and stuff. So their, their writing chops are still happening. Um, I mean, they can still sing. So why not bring it so, on? So I'm pretty excited. I'm actually excited about the hologram tour. Cause I never got to see ABBA back in the day. And the idea of going into an arena and seeing the 1970s hologram ABBA and hearing that music coming. That's through the, happening. That's is happening. It? That's wow. Happening. That was the impetus for them to write new music because they started working on that project. Are they all still alive? They're all still alive. But they're going to just hologram their old bodies. Yep. And then come out and do a new bit as well. Or I'm not sure about that. Right. They, they, the new music, as far as I know, uh, was an afterthought. Got like it. they started working on this hologram project. I think they might have like had to move around or something for mm-hmm. the for yeah. them to capture their movements or something. <laughs> um, but they went in the studio and they recorded these songs. And I guess in December, there's going to be a two hour 
documentary that's going to air all over the world, and nice. that's when they're going to debut the new songs, which I, I can't wait to hear. But even if they're bad, who cares? It doesn't ruin... Some people are so weird I about know, that right? stuff. Like, you're going to ruin can't. the legacy. I mean... Did you see the petition that some fans tried to start in regards to Weezer? These fans were like, we need to get 100 or 1,000, probably more than 100, <laughs> however many thousand signatures, to prevent Weezer from ever releasing a new album oh ever again. Oh, my gosh. Because they're damaging the legacy of Blue and Pinkerton. And you're like, fucking get over it, dude. That's ridiculous. Also, not true. The White Album is like probably one of my favorite albums that they have ever done. Like I that, think Make Believe is their most underrated album ever. Well, that, that album that's is the other thing. If you talk to a Weezer fan, they'll all have a different yeah. new album that they like. That's like their whatever. new West, the Keys album, isn't it? That one. Yeah. The Rick Ru- it was ironic that Rick Rubin managed to produce an album by them which sounds more like the Cars than anything that Rick did. Yeah. I love that record, but the White was fantastic. And the one before that, right. Everything Will Be All Right in the End, was brilliant as I mean, well i thought i i think that they're still putting out n- great new music and even even if they put out an album and it only has one or two good songs on it i mean who Those cares one or then two you, are always then you good. go see them in concert and they're just like they've got this song and this song and this song i mean they can fill a two-hour concert with songs Smash everyone singles. knows which is not many bands can, can do that but i mean how many bands have put out terrible music i mean like you know if you're a kiss fan which i'm marginally a kiss fan but they had amazing albums in the seventies and a lot of really terrible albums yeah. <laughs> like after that, but it doesn't make you not a kiss fan or like them any less. Are you, you know, like it's absurd. To Even be like, the stones, you know, they put out some stinkers. Oh yeah. Every, everyone. I mean, if you put out that much, if you're a band for that long, you're going to put out some absolutely. stinkers. And if you're you? a Bob true Dylan. fan, yeah, you'll love the stinkers. All of it. Yeah. It's like, apart you... from Ratitude, Ratitude stinks, right? <laughs> and Hurley. Those but, two but albums. But then you like... learn to love the things that stink, you know, like, yeah. like when I was got really into the Beach Boys, like I started reading all the books about their story and they had some albums in the seventies that were mm-hmm. pretty like, like if you just Weird. listen to them with no background information, you're just like, this is not really that great. No. But then if you know what was going on at the time and then you start listening to it with that lens you're like oh then you learn to love even like the bad stuff i mean yeah the context informs it doesn't it yeah paul mccartney has a lot of solo stuff that you could listen to and go "Mm," but then you know if you're a fan you listen to it enough times you're like "Mm, i kind of like this song yeah yeah (laughs) i mean it's it's art you know it's subjective um i finally want to ask you about the new album because there's a song on there called at all is that the name of the song yes i feel like you wrote that song for me and how i feel (laughs) about my ex-girlfriend i listened to that song and i was like nailed it absolutely nailed it what a great tune that is awesome thank you so much. i had a breakup recently well i say recently it was eight months ago now and up until recently i was still caught up on her and hung up on it and then i found out that she's moved on and got a new boyfriend and i finally had that sense of like okay it's finally over now i can move on so i'm doing i'm writing this stand-up bit at the moment which sort of exercises some of my thoughts and feelings about it so hearing that song i was like fuck yeah yeah, it's cathartic writing about that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, it? totally. Obviously, you're in a great place in your romantic life, so it's not autobiographical. Yeah, such, it's funny now, when but... I when I did this new album, I I my my last album, I had an album called Something Good, and a lot of that stuff was informed by what was going on in my life. But uh, when I did Cabin Life, uh, I basically just got a cabin up in Lake Arrowhead, and I said every time I rent a cabin, I'm going to write a song. And so I just did that. Sometimes I'd write two songs in a day, and that was like it was like a little. It's kind of like what you're doing. It was like a vacation, but also a work trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I just wrote all the songs. I guess they're all sort of based on stuff that was inside me, but none of them were very specific about like a person. So that was just a song. I think that's maybe why it's relatable. It's like stuff that I can pull from, but it really wasn't about one person. That's why it's not so specific that 
other people can't relate to it you know i love it if anyone else out there has had a recent breakup and they feel like they never want to see that person ever again <laughs> put on at all by linus of hollywood and you'll have a big beaming smile on your face and you'll be like <laughs> yeah man he said it he said it and that last song on the album um it was you mm -hmm. that reminded me so much of What's the Beatles song that goes, nothing's gonna change my world? Oh, uh, Across the Universe? It reminded me oh, of that. Oh, cool. Well, that's a Very compliment. similar. And um, Nilsson throughout, there's touches of Nilsson for me. Is he a, a guy you look to as inspiration at all? Or? Um, I really like his stuff. It's funny, there's these people that are sort of in the Beatles orbit yep. that should be big inspirations to me, but I never fully got into. Like, like Emmett Rhodes is another one that people often cite, and I never fully got into his stuff um but i think he was influenced by the same stuff about the beatles that i am influenced by so i think yeah, that's yeah. probably where the, par the parallels are love it yeah. well it's out right now cabin life by linus of hollywood if you've never heard his solo stuff i think that's as good a place as any to start right and then you can yeah sure work your way backwards yeah um and crappy records you and jarrett working on anything uh, with that, you got the, any bands coming out? The label's kind of chilled out for now. I'm still doing a bunch of stuff with Jared. He he's actually working. He's got a lot of bands that he's developing, so he's having me like uh, mix a lot. Of, I've been mixing a lot lately, so I've Good been times. working working on that stuff. And I think there might be some new bowling for soup coming. Or Ooh. Yeah, so. And you got to come over to the UK the next time they tour. I know. Tell him he's got to bring you. What's he playing at? Uh, there was one tour you were meant to come on, and then something happened, and you didn't come over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But next time. It's got to happen. I got to get over there. That that one tour we did was a lot of fun. It was super fun. Really good to see you, dude. Good to see you, man. Let's Thank go you get for some having Mexican me food. on here. My pleasure. You enjoy it? Was it all right? Yeah, it was great. Good times. All right, let's go eat. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 